Somebody recently told me that there's a uh, fine line between a long drawn out sermon and a hostage situation. I'm going to do my best to not make this a hostage situation. We're in a, uh, a series of messages about prosperity. This is part of a, a larger series where we are proclaiming the Word of God into and over our lives, into the situations and circumstances of our lives, expecting that that proclamation is going to make a difference in us. Um, over the last couple of years, we've spent time talking about things like prayer and intimacy with God and worship, as well as uh, things like evangelism and discipleship and unity, all of those kind of things. And now we're talking about prosperity, but not, not from a name it and claim it kind of perspective, but from an honest biblical perspective. And so I have creatively titled this sermon, Biblical Prosperity. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we approach your word, we are once again inviting you to speak into us. God, we, we desire to hear from you. And we purposely right now open ourselves to allow you to adjust our thinking and anything that needs to be adjusted. Lord, we invite you to have your way in us by your word and by your spirit. We're yours. Amen. Amen. I want to begin by kind of uh, laying out what I think is a big overarching premise in this whole idea of what I'm going to sh share with you today. I couldn't preach this same message, at least not the way that I'm going to preach it here today, in the interior of Uganda, for example. We in this country live so far above the standard of most of the world that the poorest among us is wealthy by practically any standard anyplace else. And so I want to make sure that we understand what I'm going to say in that context because otherwise it's easy to take what I'm saying and, and run in a total different direction, all right? So I want, want us to understand that when we read stuff in the New Testament where it talks about rich people, that's all of us here whether we feel like we are or not, okay? 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, it says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, talking about people who are wealthy, uh, you and me, for example, are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk more about this passage in, in a few minutes, but I want us to see right from the beginning here that Paul does not condemn people for having material possessions. It's not like it's a bad thing. All right? You know, when we... Read where Jesus said that the, the poor will always be among you. I get the impression in reading that, that the, the poor, although it's not a terrible, odd thing, I mean, they're always going to be among you, that at the same time, it's not everybody. There are going to be a bunch of people that are not in that category of poor. They're going to be among you, but it's not probably you. It's not wrong to have money. 
Now, of course, the balance to that is that people who have lots of money can easily begin to trust in their finances, right? Heard a story recently about a, a wealthy man. He was a Christian. When he was younger, he was giving his testimony. And when he was younger, he, he basically had nothing. He said at one point in his life, he had $1 to his name. And he decided he was going to put that into the offering. Ask God to bless him. And apparently God did because now he's a millionaire. But somebody asked him, okay, so back then you put everything you had into the offering. What, what, what do you suppose, and God blessed you for it, what do you suppose would happen if you did that today? And the man, like the rich young ruler in the New Testament, went away sad because he had great wealth. A couple weeks ago, Wayne DeClue in his sermon said, those with massive resources often start trusting in the provision rather than the provider. And it's true. And unfortunately, it's easy to do. So there's clearly a balance. It's not wrong to have money, but there's also a caution about it. Now, I do want to say this, that in sharing this series of messages, it is in part, uh, we, as, as leadership of the church, we were praying, and, and one of the things that we felt like we needed to combat was what we see as kind of a poverty mentality. And not even just talking about here at our church, this seems to be pretty prevalent throughout Jefferson County. I've uh, heard numerous people who seem uh, like a, a, as though we are second rate compared to people in St. Louis or St. Louis County, as though we, we're just not quite as good at, as them. And I've even... Uh, heard people in our congregation who have that mentality that if they have anything that's, that's, that's really nice, they'll apologize for it. I've even done that myself. But that mindset doesn't seem to be scriptural. Let me say this. Lynn Heights, one of the co-founders of this place, um, uh, he, he, he's gone now, all right? And I don't like to say disparaging things about people, especially people that I really respect, um, especially when they're not there to offer their perspective. But I've had at least three different people on three different occasions tell me that they felt condemned by Lynn, not convicted, but condemned because they had any material possessions at all. Now, don't misunderstand. I greatly admire Lynn. His passion for souls was amazing, but he wasn't perfect. And I think that that poverty mentality of his has bled over into us as a congregation and into uh, this place. The Bible does not tell us that we're supposed to be poor. And Jesus does suggest that riches can be a stumbling block. Remember he said it's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. So clearly you've got to be cautious but in saying that, he's not saying that you need to be poor and he's not even saying that you shouldn't be rich. Think about what he says right after that. He says, with God, all things are possible. If you understand it in context, he's clearly telling us there are going to be rich people in heaven, all right? So it's not a bad thing. And as I was preparing for this message, I came across some information that that I, it, it, for me, it, I think it helped kind of fill in some, some blanks in my thinking. A man named David, Co Dr. David Cotter, and 
he talks about the, the difference between riches and wealth. And I'll, I'm not sure that that's a, a fair differentiation. I'll talk about that in a minute. But let me read you the quote, and then, then we'll talk about it. In the New Testament, riches were associated with ostentatious displays of gold and fine clothes, sumptuous feasting, self-indulgence, stinginess toward the poor, fraud against workers, and wandering away from the faith. With this in mind, the New Testament appropriately condemns rich people with self-indulgent heart attitudes while also encouraging the creation of wealth. Wealth is created as people obey the cultural mandate of Genesis 1.28 to subdue the world and make it useful for human beings. In the first century, this was mostly accomplished through diligent farming and honest trading. As wealth was created, people were prepared to share with those in need. Such people were expected to view wealth as, as a stewardship for example, Lydia was a wealthy merchant, but was not distracted by her expensive goods from hearing the gospel message from Paul. Now, let me say, having read that, let me say that the word riches in the Bible is not always a bad thing, okay? But if you, regardless of what terminology you want to use, whether you want to use riches and wealth or whatever, I think that the, the crux of the matter that Dr. Cotter is trying to get at here is it's a heart issue. If you have money, that's not bad. If money has you, that's bad. Are you with me? Yeah. If, 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 if you're, you're, you look at your, your possessions as something to indulge your every sensual whim, that's not a good thing, okay? But if you understand that you are simply a steward of those things, that they ultimately belong to God, that changes the whole perspective. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't enjoy what God has entrusted to you. Uh, actually, you should. Go back to 1 Timothy 16, or 6, 17, where we started. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to Enjoy. Richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's pretty clear, isn't it? We don't have to try to figure out what that is. We're allowed to enjoy the things that he gives us. But again, it's, it's, it's a matter of stewardship. I can't, I can't hold on to those things so tightly that if they're gone, that I'm devastated. G.K. Chesterton once said, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. And I think he's right. But at the same time, we can enjoy the things that God has brought into our lives, that he has entrusted us with. Uh, Dr. Cotter, in that same article, he goes on to, to suggest that there are four major causes of poverty depicted in the New Testament. Rich people who oppress the poor or hoard the riches, laziness or moral foolishness, sudden disasters or calamities, and problems associated with living in a fallen world, old age, sickness, loss of family members, those kind of things. But here's the thing, all of those have something in common. They all have a single root, if you will. It's sin. Let me, let me say this, not necessarily the sin of the person who is in poverty, okay? I'm talking about sin in general, okay? Let me say this clearly and without apology. God did not create us to live in poverty. It was not part of the original design. But when sin entered the world, 
all of a sudden the design changed. And I think one of the biggest changes that happened was in focus. There was no longer an outward focus toward God and toward one another. There was now an inward focus, a selfishness, a self-centeredness, a me, myself, and I kind of mentality that has a tendency to, to, to relegate everything, including God, to a lower position than me. It's all about me. And when we recognize that, we have to understand that, yes, that kind of mentality starts in our minds and in our attitudes, but it ultimately ends up playing out in our wallets. See, if I see myself as more important than you or anybody else, then it's going to affect how willing I am to be generous. If I see my, my, my finances that I have, my possessions, as things that are for me to hang on to, to indulge my fleshly nature, then I'm going to be less willing to help you. Do you see how sin in general, and, and, and honestly I think our inherited sinful nature, has a tendency to perpetuate poverty? So think about this, if sin is the underlying cause of poverty, the, the root, the origin, then what's the cure? What's the antidote? It's the gospel. It's the kingdom of God come among us. And think about it, if you really understand that, it addresses all four of those areas that we just talked about. Rich people who oppress or hoard their riches. Think about Zacchaeus in the New Testament. The, the tax collector, all about himself. He was stealing money really from, from people. He was hoarding it for himself. He wasn't interested in other people. What happened when he encountered Jesus? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is, this is no little minor change in his thinking going on here. This isn't, this isn't somebody that, that didn't like lima beans and 14 years later thinks they might be okay. No, this is a major total shift that's going to affect every area of his life. And that's what happens when we encounter the gospel. Oh, it, we, we may not have that immediate outward overt change like Zacchaeus did. I'd like to say that always happens. It does happen sometimes. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes there are things that hang on inside of us, right? But at the same time, when we truly encounter the gospel, it begins to change us on the inside. And so I no longer want to hang on to everything and hoard it for myself and oppress others. No, I, when, I've, when I've truly encountered the life-changing power of God, I want to pass that on. When I know His love, I want to help and love others in, in practical and tangible ways, right? The gospel is going to change that attitude in us. It's no longer just about us. Think about laziness or, or moral foolishness. Again, when we encounter the gospel, the fact that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die in our place, when we get that, when that, that impacts our lives, then we don't want to be lazy and foolish. There, again, there may not be that immediate outward overt change. There could be. It, it happens. 
But at the very least, there's a, a shifting on the inside that says, I want to actually help. I want to actually work. I want to do something. I want to be diligent. I don't, I don't want to be foolish. I want to be wise. Things begin to change on the inside. And those last two, sudden disasters or calamities and problems associated with living in a fallen world, you know, really, I, I would lump those two together. They're both symptoms of sin. They're the result of sin. Neither of those was present prior to sin being in the world. And although to, to some extent we are going to deal with those things throughout our lifetime here on earth, the fact still remains that Jesus came to redeem us from the curse. And we're not going to need to deal with those things once we get to heaven at all. They're going to be gone, totally gone. So if you understand what I just said, then it's obvious that the underlying cause of poverty is sin. Again, not necessarily the sin of the person who's in poverty. It's just sin in general. But then the cure, the, the change agent, if you will, is the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection changes everything. Those that are dead find life. It changes. Now, having laid that foundation, I think there's some biblical principles that we would do well to understand. And I'm not going to spend lots of time on various ones, but there's one I think is really important, and that is that there are priorities that are higher than money. There are priorities that are higher than money. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6.33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other things are going to be given to you. The, the stuff, including money, are simply byproducts. They're not the end goal, if you will. I really appreciate the way Pastor Nick said it years ago. Why spend your time trying to pursue, or pursuing some trinkets when the Lord of the universe is inviting you to know him personally? What a great question. The Apostle John said, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. All of the other stuff, whether it's finances or health or relationships or whatever, those are all simply an outflow of the one thing that is really needful, our relationship with him. Daryl last week made a great statement, apart from Christ, we're paupers. And that's true even if we have loads of money. I mean, think about it. Compared to the riches of his grace, all of the money on the planet is but a pittance. You know, the, the person who last week won $447 million in the lottery, if they don't know Christ, if they don't have a true relationship with him, they're still poor. Now, there's some of you, I would be willing to bet that there's at least one or two who when I made that statement, you're thinking, I'd like to be poor like that. And I only know that you thought that because I thought that when I wrote it. But the reality is all that does is it shows how far we are from God's heart. I mean, think about it. A huge, in this case, a really huge pile of money compared to knowing Almighty God. There's no comparison. It's not even close. Two weeks ago in his sermon, Wayne told us that true prosperity is about the abundant life that Jesus promised. And that comes not from having a bunch of stuff. 
but in being in true relationship with the Lord. So if material gain is your first priority, guess what? Your priorities are messed up. Your first priority ought to be a relationship with God, ought to be knowing Him. And when that's real, when that's there, then the stuff, if you will, is a byproduct. He'll give us what we need. Now there are also um, biblical principles that I would say would, would govern in general how we connect or interact with money and possessions. Let me give you three. Again, there may be a whole bunch more. I'm just trying to not make this a hostage situation, all right? Working diligently will bring you financial rewards. Working diligently will bring you financial rewards. Proverbs 10, 4, it says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. This is one of those things that we talked about earlier about laziness. You know, the opposite of it is diligence. If we're diligent, if we're, we're, we're not lazy, if we're working with our hands, doing what we need to do, it's going to bring about the things that we need. And, and if you want to see this concept, Proverbs is a great place to go because it, it, it tells us it over and over in so many different ways. Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 14, 22, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Hard work will help you to prosper. Now, that may seem obvious to us, but it's only obvious because God put it as, as a principle into his creation. When we're diligent, when we work hard, we're going to see material gain from it. Also, being in right relationship with God helps put us into a position where we can prosper puts us into a position where we can prosper. Psalm 34, verses 9 and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I want to make sure that we really understand this, what this verse is saying here. And I'm going to, I'm going to share something with you that some of you may have heard me share in a different context in the past, but I, I, I think it's really important in this context. Matthew 4.10, Jesus, remember, he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus in that verse is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13 where it says, fear the Lord your God, serve him only. And where it said, fear the Lord your God and serve him only, Jesus said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now please understand, Jesus is not instituting a whole new idea here. That word worship has the understanding of reverence and awe in it. I don't know about you, but I struggle with the idea of cowering in fear before God. Oh, don't misunderstand. I know that he is all-powerful. One word, one snap of his fingers, we're all out of here. It's over, all right? But I'm on the right side of the cross. I know his love, his mercy, his grace toward me. I have difficulty cowering in fear before a God that I know loves me that much. Are you with me? But the idea of reverence and awe, I get that. That makes sense to my brain. I don't know about you, but there are times where I read the Bible and I struggle with the meaning of words and phrases. I went through seminary, I studied Greek, and there's still times I'm going, what does that mean? Is anybody with me on that? If you could pick one person through all time who could clearly interpret the book, who would it be? Jesus, the Word made flesh, 
And where it in the Old Testament said, fear the Lord your God, Jesus said, worship the Lord your God. Now I'm telling you all of that because the same word that is found in Deuteronomy 6.13 that says fear, that Jesus said is worship, is the same word that's found in Psalm 34 that we just read. And if I could read that Psalm 34 with Jesus, what I would say is Jesus' commentary, I would say this, Oh, worship the Lord, you his saints, for those who worship him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. There is something about having that close, intimate relationship with God that positions us to receive blessings from his hand. Are you following me? Along with that, there's whole, also the whole idea of as we are generous, God is generous toward us. Luke 6.38, Jesus said, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the, with the measure you, met, you use, it will be measured back to you. And I want to stress here that this is, a, this is a principle, not a motivation. Yes, when we give, we're going to receive, but it's not the reason that we, we give. We don't give so that we get. We give because God's been good to us. Think about, think about Jesus' story about the, the Good Samaritan. After the, the Good Samaritan had rescued the guy, he took him to the, the inn and he told the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. That doesn't sound like giving to get, does it? No, no, he's just doing it because it's the right thing to do. And, and keep in mind, th this story is probably not a true story. It might be, we don't know for sure, but it's a story that Jesus told in order to teach us. And so Jesus is telling us this is the kind of attitude that we should have, that we give not to get, but simply we give to help out. And Jesus really said that very thing just a few chapters earlier in Luke 6. He said, if you lend to those with whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I, I find it interesting here that Jesus uses the word lend, but that's not really what he's talking about. I get the impression that Jesus used that word to keep from putting his hearers off too much because he wanted to make a point. He, he says you're supposed to lend and not expect to get anything back. What is he really talking about? He's not talking about lending. He's talking about giving. Yeah. And he's saying that's how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to give, not expecting to get anything back. We, we will, when we give, we will re receive, okay? But that's a principle, it's not a motivation. Here, let me, let me, let me illustrate it like this. Suppose, suppose I were to go visit some, a, a family, some friends of mine, and they, let's say they have a little five or six-year-old little girl. And I know this little girl, and so I take her a small box of chocolates, when I get there, I hand her the chocolate. She runs off. I don't see her for another 10 or 15 minutes. She comes back, and now she has chocolate all over her face and all over her hands, and she wants to know if I have anything else for her. But let's 
do that differently. Let's say I go to a different house. They also have a five or six-year-old little girl, and I bring her a box of chocolates, and I give her the box of chocolates when I get there, and she thanks me, and she carefully opens the box, and she says, I'd like you to have the first one. And I said, I, I brought those for you. She says, yes, I know, but I want to thank you by letting you have the first one. And then she eats one, and then she proceeds to offer them to her family. Which of those two little girls do you suppose is more likely to get a box of chocolates from me the next time I visit their house? Are you with me? See, to me, that's really the, the idea of the tithe in the Bible. And I'm probably going to get some people upset with me when I say this, but the reality is that there is nothing in the New Testament that demands that we tithe. But... There's a whole lot of precedent in the Old Testament and I think we make a mistake if we just throw all of that out. And I have yet to meet somebody who tithes who doesn't think it's a good idea. Even people that started out unsure about that whole idea have seen the blessing of God in it. And again, it's a principle. Give and it will be given to you. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. It's the old adage, you can't outgive God. I'm convinced that God wants to bless his people. Matthew 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God wants to bless his children, but, but we can... We can put off that blessing. We can circumvent it by not being generous, by not giving toward his work, if you will. Great story. I don't know if it's true or not. Guy died and went to heaven, met St. Peter at the pearly gates. Peter's going to take him personally to his house where he's going to live there in heaven. And so they start walking down the road and there's these huge mansions and the guy's, look at this, this is amazing. And the further they walk, the houses start getting a little bit smaller. I mean, they're still nice, but they're, they're smaller. And keep walking, and now they're getting even smaller. And they keep walking. Now they're just, you know, kind of modest homes. And finally, they reach the end of the road, and there's a little thatched roof hut. And Peter smiles and says, there's your home. And the guy's kind of taken aback. W uh, wait a minute, what about all those other ones? Some of those were empty. And Peter smiles and says, yes, we, we did the best we could with what you sent us. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Just saying. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6, 7, and 8, it says this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. And again, this is, th this is a heart issue. We give because of God's amazing, abundant provision in our lives. And it's important for us to recognize the whole, the whole stewardship aspect of our giving. 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. You know, in context, if you read that, it's really talking about... Um, uh, being trustworthy in the, the presentation of the gospel, in, in, of God's word, all right? But there's a principle here, regardless, that stewards are supposed to be trustworthy. 
You know, Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story about the, the rich guy who goes on a journey and entrusts his goods and his money to his servants or his stewards, depending on your, your translation. And the point of that story is that they were supposed to be faithful. That's us. We're supposed to be faithful with what God has given to us, what he's entrusted to us. And if we recognize our role as a steward, it changes how we think and how we interact with the things that God has entrusted to us. It is not me giving my money or whatever it is to some cause or some organization. It is instead me as a steward simply moving money, God's money, from one of his accounts to another. If we get that, it changes how we think about it. And apparently, from the Lord's priority, giving is a pretty important thing. Mark 12, he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You know, if you think about it, right there at that point, that's where a whole bunch of us would be going, that was stupid. She shouldn't have done that. She just gave away everything she's got to live on. That, that's dumb. And yet Jesus commended her. Wow. I think, I think we just think about this stuff all upside down and backwards all too often. God apparently likes it when we give. You know, we just read the God loves a cheerful giver. All right, he loves everybody. I get it, okay? But apparently there's some kind of special place in God's heart for people that, that give and give cheerfully. Let me start to wrap this up. God's word nowhere states or implies that we should be poor. I'm not suggesting that God doesn't like poor people. Don't misunderstand just that the word does not tell us that we should be poor. You can prosper in this life. In fact, I'm pretty sure from my study of scripture, that's exactly what God wants us to do. I really like the, uh, the quote that Daryl shared last week from A.W. Tozer. With the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? And I would say absolutely nothing. God has called us and graced us as his people to prosper, to live an abundant life. That doesn't mean that we should all be driving BMWs and live in big fancy houses, all right? Don't misunderstand. But if we really recognize what I said earlier, that poverty is brought about as a result of sin, then I'm pretty sure it is not God's will for us to be dirt poor. Everybody with me? So how do we respond to this? First, I'm going to give you three, three thoughts. First, we intentionally realign our priorities. We intentionally realign our priorities. We, we pursue God, not finances. We go after God, so that puts us in a position where we can receive from Him. We realign our priorities. Secondly, we work diligently. We, we, we refuse to be slothful or lazy. We do the things that God puts in front of us to do with a willing heart, with all of our might going after it. We work diligently. 
And then thirdly, we steward his money well. We're generous and caring. We're giving toward his work. We steward his money well. Let's pray. Lord, today, as we have heard the things that your word has to say about finances, perhaps there are some of us who have been convicted here by the things that we have heard. Lord, perhaps you have changed our thinking in some areas. Again, God, we are inviting you to work in us and set aright anything that, that isn't the way that you want it to be. Lord, we today choose to intentionally realign our priorities. If we've been pursuing money and finances above you, forgive us. And cause us, Lord, instead to pursue you, to desire you, to want you more than anything else. Lord, may we in your grace be diligent in all that you call us to do. To not be slothful, to not be lazy, but instead to, to, to wholeheartedly pursue the things that you want us to. And God, may we in your mercy steward well the things that you have entrusted to us. That we are careful with those things. And we, we thank you that you have allowed us to enjoy the things that you have given us. But God, at the same time, may we see those as simply trusts from you, not possessions of our own, and use them accordingly. Lord, in all of this, our eyes are on you, and we trust you to work in us the things that you want. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.